Hello and welcome to another episode of the ABIP podcast. This is Abhinav Agrawal, your host from the Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell in New York. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker alone and not necessarily those endorsed by the ABIP. Today, we have the pleasure of hosting Dr. David Fellakopman for this very interesting but challenging topic discussing the IP perspective and the pulmonary perspective in the management of recurrent respiratory papillomatosis. Dr. Fellakopman is a well-renowned personality in the field of IP and is currently the Chief of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center and a Professor of Medicine at the Geisel School of Medicine. Welcome, David, and thank you for joining us today for this podcast. Thanks, Abhi. Uh, pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So let's dive into the topic. So with regards to RRP, we know that distal airway involvement can occur in 2 to 5% patients with papillomas of the larynx and with about 1% patients having involvement of the pulmonary parenchyma. Now, I've seen that our ENT colleagues frequently deploy the use of microdebrider in the management of glottic or laryngeal disease. So let's say we have a patient, a 28-year-old with mid-tracheal involvement with RRP causing symptoms. What is the approach to these patients in terms of endoscopic therapy? Yeah, so that's a great question with very little data to support opinion. Um, there, there are very few randomized trials, um, certainly no comparative efficacy trials that I know of. Um, so I think your approach is really dependent on your training um, and your own experience. Um, I personally love the microdebrider um, in lesions that affect the trachea, um, either high or low trachea or proximal mainstem bronchi. Uh, the benefits of the microdebrider, I think it causes less aerosolization than a laser. And we'll talk about that in a second. Um, it's at, uh, fairly good in controlling hemostasis given the suction that you could attach to the microdebrider. Um, but, but there's very little data for it. Um, as you know, there are lots of modalities that have been used to treat um, tracheobronchial uh, papillomatosis, including a host of different lasers. Uh, the ENT uh, literature um, has been using a lot of the KTP laser uh, just because right. it's um, efficacy in uh, the, the vascular bed of the papilloma. Uh, so I've used KTP laser, I've used YAG laser, I've used a diode laser and homium laser. Um, so one of the theoretical disadvantages of any thermal modality is that there have been viral particles isolated in the plume. So with ventilation, you know, could some of these viral particles progress more distal into the parenchyma or more distal airways? It's certainly possible. I'm not, I'm not aware of any case reports of patient to physician transmission. Um, that being said, the current recommendations are that, you know, you do wear N95s and a face shield um, and appropriate PPE. Um, so I, I do like the microdebrider based on that theoretical risk. Now, as you also know, um, papillomatosis is a progressive disease. So all of these patients will progress and they progress into the more distal airways in the parenchyma. So um, it's really hard to even study a, uh, an effective treatment in terms of disease progression because these patients do progress. So 
if you use a micro debrider on 10 patients and they progress, you know, would they have progressed if you used a laser? And they would have. The question is the speed at which they progress, I guess. Well, and as you mentioned, I mean, you know, it comes down to a lot of training. So when I, where I trained just from personal experience, I did not have, uh, you know, micro debriders. So we would, and to your point, I mean, thermal therapy, the risk is of at least a theoretical risk of aerosolization, both for the patient at the distal airways and then, uh, you know, for the provider and the team that's present, uh, even in the presence of PPE. So what about cryotherapy? Have you ever used or, you know, thought about using cryotherapy for debulking or even treating the base? Let's say if you use one therapy for debulking and then uh, cryotherapy for the base. Sure. Um, and, and likewise, cryo is a great modality. Um, one of the beautiful things about um, a cryotherapy probe is that the normal airway is generally resistant to cryo injury, so it's harder to hurt someone. Um, as com compared to a laser where you could you know, shoot through the airway. Um, there's not a lot of data for cryotherapy. I probably would avoid cryospray uh, for the same reasons um, uh, that I would steer away from the laser personally uh, with the additional fact that there are some data for laser, but I'm not aware of any data for cryospray. In addition, have you do you use local therapy like local antiviral therapy with either pseudofovir or even systemic therapy in these patients when you're seeing them up front or even seeing them for their first recurrence? Uh, or yes, you're following so, them? another great question. So um, first off, I, I do make sure that everybody has received the HPV vaccine. Uh, there are some data in the pediatric literature. Uh, that A, it reduces the incidence of um, progression, but even as a treatment modality, um, HPV vaccine might increase the um, interprocedural interval. Um, and then in terms of sedofavir, um, I think the current recommendations are that if you're requiring more than four to six um, procedures per year, you should consider local and or systemic therapy. Um, at Hopkins, we had a, a otolaryngology colleague, Simon Best, who has done some amazing research in uh, using bevacizumab. So I have um, a, a fair experience with bevacizumab. And I got to tell you, in the 20 years that I've been treating papillomatosis, I've never seen anything melt away the disease like bevacizumab. Um, it just, I, I've had patients with severe tracheobronchial disease and within um, one or two doses, their airways are almost clean. It is some of the most amazing things that I've seen. Now, I've also seen complications from the bevacizumab too, including horrendous um, tracheal esophageal fistula. Uh, so right. it's not without risk, but it does seem to work. Now, whether you could inject it locally or do you need it systemically, that, that's where we're awaiting data. But um, I would reference people to Simon Best. Absolutely. No, and I know there are some NIH trials and something that we were considering ourselves recently for one of our patients, uh, you know, bevacizumab, and uh, thank you for letting us know that. So do you, in addition, like, you know, you, you mentioned about systemic therapy with bevacizumab. So one of the questions that I faced recently myself was that we know that there is a rate of malignant transformation in these patients up to 3 to 7% in adults. And let's say we have a patient with a history of laryngeal papillomatosis. The laryngeal aspect is under good control, you know, gets frequent follow-up with ENT. 
but now has a pulmonary lesion that is enlarging. It, you know, radiographically looks like a papilloma that seems to be enlarging. Would you, just from the diagnostic perspective, would you do a biopsy to assess for transformation? And what prompts your decision to do a biopsy in these patients? Yeah, I think that's another great question. And I think we certainly do need to worry about malignant transformation. Um, we, you know, papillomatosis could look like a lot of things on imaging. It could look like nodules, it could look like uh, cysts with um, either thin or slightly thicker walls. Um, they, it could look like a cavitary lesion um, or even a pulmonary mass. Um, so I, I do think you need to keep a broad differential. Um, and, I, and I do think you need to keep squamous cell transformation um, on your short list of what this could be. Um, because if it's an early localized squamous cell, it could be cured with resection. Um, and this is sometimes where a multidisciplinary, either a thoracic tumor board or a complex airway conference with your ENT colleagues and people who, who just see a lot of this, because it's, it's a fairly rare disease. So you, you always want lots of eyes on this, to get your thoracic radiologists involved. Um, but I do have a low threshold to biopsy to make sure that there has not been malignant transformation. So, you know, when we biopsy them, so I had this interesting case recently where once you biopsy them, I mean, either you're going to see squamous transformation, but I had this patient, one of them, who had a high-grade dysplasia. And that prompted a more, you know, we took it to a multidisciplinary tumor board. But let's say you have this patient we talked about and now who has high-grade dysplasia, what are the steps that you would pursue? Would you then straight refer the patient for a surgical resection if this is the only lesion? Or would you consider systemic therapy or even follow up to see if this is getting larger? Uh, you know, um, what prompts the decision again, one way or the other in terms of systemic therapy versus resection apart from surgical candidacy? Yeah, so that's another really good question um, for, for which there's not a lot of data. Um, I think I think we all have to realize that reading small biopsy specimens is an art, um, and we're learning that even with um, non-small cell lung cancer, um, if, if you show tbna specimens to a bunch of cytopathologists uh, you sometimes get variations in the read um, and then especially with dysplasia metaplasia carcinoma in situ things like that there's a lot of inter and intra observer variability so you you need to first trust your pathologist um, the decision about resection um, is really going to be dependent on where the lesion is. You, you sort of hate to do a lobectomy for high-grade dysplasia. Um, if it's a peripheral nodule that could be taken out with a wedge, that's a different thing. Um, it depends how um, what your access to minimally invasive thoracic surgeons is like So, I and, and the status of your patient. Um, as, as you know, a lot of these patients are young. Uh, so the this is the part of interventional pulmonary that I find fascinating. We're all pretty good at palliating malignant central airway obstruction in a you know 85-year-old with metastatic cancer, but the bigger and more challenging question for us is how do we keep someone who's 35, 40 years old with quote-unquote benign disease, and, and I don't like calling this benign disease, I'd rather call it non-malignant disease. Like um, you know, but um, how do you get someone who's 35, 40 years old to 75, 80 years old? You know, that, that's the challenging, you know, intellectual stimulant part of all this. You know, let me take it, let me make it even more challenging. So let's say we have a, 
now at two or three nodules, which are enlarging in size. And you know, it has happened where we have these young patients who have the laryngeal disease under control and now have two or three nodules that are slowly increasing in size, where even if you biopsy them and we see transformation, surgery is not I may not be the best step because we cannot go around doing lobectomies or even, I mean, if, especially if they're not accessible to a veg. So what do you pursue? You talked about bevacizumab, like systemic therapy in these patients, especially if they have worsening of pulmonary nodules or increasing in size. Yeah, so this is where I think we're going to um, need to work in collaboration with our medical oncology co colleagues as well, uh, even for the bevacizumab. Um, we work with them because that's not a drug that I prescribe. Uh, so um, even if we're just treating central airways, uh, we're going to be working with them. But certainly in patients who you're worried about malignant transformation, I would want to get their input on, do you, do you treat this um, sort of as papilloma? Do you treat it as a squamous cell? So um, that's something that's out of my uh, ballyhoo, if you will. Absolutely. I think the, the importance of multidisciplinary thoracic tumor board or, you know, the complex area and people with experience comes into play when dealing with uh, these challenging cases. So coming back to our first patient. So let's say you, you know, you treated the patient with either a microdebrider or some, someone treated the patient with, let's say, snare plus treating the cryotherapy, uh, using cryotherapy for the base. How often do you perform surveillance? You know, how often do you look for recurrence? Do you base it upon symptoms? Or do you perform frequent bronchoscopic or just imaging surveillance? How do you manage these patients over the long run? Yeah, so uh, again, very limited data. Um, my, my personal preference is to take a look down sort of as little as needed, but as much as needed. I, I don't want to necessarily wait until patients are symptomatic because, as you know, you could lose a significant mm -hmm. amount of um, airway real estate without uh, developing symptoms. Um, right. But there are some people who progress more rapidly than others. So if it's a person that I'm seeing for the first time and I, and I treat them, I'll usually take a look uh, down um, maybe three to four months later just to see what's going on and then base the subsequent uh, bronchoscopies on what I'm seeing. Um, you don't want to necessarily intervene too much, not only from an inconvenience standpoint for the patient, but again, I, I don't want to do things that are going to make things worse. Um, so I, I try to be somewhat conservative, but not so conservative that I'm, you know, waiting for symptoms. And that's a fine line, uh, you know, of course, uh, we don't want to make things worse, both in terms of symptoms-wise and not do un unnecessary intervention, especially with the risk of, especially if you're using thermal therapy, aerosolization. Um, do you, do you always treat them? Let's say there's mild recurrence uh, when you go in. Do you always treat the base to see if they have a sustained effect, or uh, do you, you know, if you see a obviously large lesion, that's when you treat them? Like especially even with the microdegrader or something. No, I, I think if I'm putting a patient through the risks of the procedure, um, I, I generally try to treat what is visible, um, and, and I do a thorough airway exam each time. So uh, just because someone has a you know, a big lesion in the mid-trachea, uh, you, you do have to look down to the sub-segmental sub level to make sure nothing's more distal. Absolutely. I mean, there's a recent patient that I had that had tracheal disease that we were intervening on, and then we located another couple of papillomas in the right lower lobe. So absolutely, you have to stress on the importance of doing a thorough surveillance exam each time you go down, especially if you're subjecting these patients to a procedure, uh, one that they need, but, you know, making sure that we cover um, all the airways. 
Are there any other clinical trials that you're aware of? I know NIH has a couple, but uh, that you refer these patients out to, or is uh, you know the systemic therapy with uh, Avastin or Bevacizumab your usual go-to? Uh, th those are what I'm aware of, um, and I I, um, I I know Simon Best has some, and I believe those are in connection with the NIH. Um, I do believe there's also a trial uh, looking at um, a uh, anti pdl one drug, um, avalumab, um, avalumab, um, and that's also through the NIH. Absolutely, yeah. So that's uh, I, I came up with that when we were discussing our yeah. patient. And, and I think yeah. there's also one on uh, uh, Pembro as well. Yep, yep. So I mean, I be a little, all, all of us are waiting with bated breath uh, for the results of those, so we can have you know more options for our patients, especially with those with uh, significantly the parenchymal or rapid recurrence. Do you have any other comments? This has been great. It's been very helpful both for me personally, and I'm sure this will be great for our listeners uh, to you know get guidance on this very challenging uh, but interesting topic in IP. Yeah, no, just, I would say just given the rarity of the disease, it would be great um, to have all of these patients in sort of a central prospective database where we could really figure out uh, the best treatment and, and ideally start comparing treatments. Uh, so whether that's through a VIP or you know uh, SAB or the NIH, uh, um, so but it, we should have sort of a, a papillomatosis registry where we could look at the stuff prospectively. I think that's a fascinating idea, especially with ABIP uh, right here. I think something that we could bring up and start a multi-center registry, both prospectively to follow these patients, both for interventions and systemic therapy, and you know put our collective brains and uh, experience together. Thank you so much uh, again for the opportunity and uh, coming over. Uh, this brings us to an end of another episode of the ABIP podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel for the latest updates and discussions with the experts in the field of IP.